The normal activation though, in the real world, is on the basis of eating and drinking, right? And you don't eat and drink in the metaverse. I mean, you could pretend to, but it's kind of pointless, right? So you gotta find other things for people to do to engage with each other, to engage in conversation or engage in activities. So some of those things are world building is a really good version of that. So if in the metaverse, you, your avatar is able to sort of take construction materials and paint, for example, with their hands, let's say, and co-create with people and create with people, you can get that, that sort of interaction, that activity that's not based on eating and drinking. Hello, my name is Demetrius, and you are listening to Spaces Podcast Express. Thank you for coming back, everybody. If you're listening along to these episodes as they come out, this is the second in our week of discussing this collision between the built environment and the digital world. Today, we're going to talk about the metaverse and placemaking in the metaverse. Our guest today is John Marks. He's a co-founding principal and chief artistic officer at Form 4 Architecture. In today's conversation, we'll talk a little bit about the metaverse and what it is, or at least our interpretation of the metaverse today. Uh, We'll dig into some of the elements of placemaking and how those apply to the metaverse. A little bit of the difference between placemaking in the metaverse versus the real world. We'll explore some practical uses of the metaverse and then dig a little bit into AR versus VR and how they could apply to the real world sometime in the near future. This was a really interesting conversation, so I know all you futurists out there that listen to the podcast will enjoy this conversation with John Marks. Today we have John Marks, who is the Chief Artistic Officer from Form 4 Architecture. John, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Demetrius. I'm a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation. We've had a few conversations about the metaverse, um, but more so the metaverse on its own. Today we're going to talk a little bit about the combination and, and sort of the adjoining factor of the real world and the metaverse, I think, mm-hmm. and your thoughts on why architects are more equipped to to handle this this undertaking that we're about to start going into of tackling the metaverse. But before we jump into that, can you uh, give our listeners just a little snapshot of who you are and your form uh, your firm form for? Yeah, so Form 4 um, Architecture, uh, we founded that in 1999, actually 1998, I think, in December. So we've been around for about 23 years, almost 24. And uh, we've always wanted to be kind of an unusual firm where we wanted to do very high quality design-centric work, but not be a pure boutique design firm so that we, we did extraordinary projects and ordinary projects, both. So it's been an interesting adventure through the last 23 years. Uh, one of my partners uh, retired two years ago, just at the beginning of COVID. So we're, um, we've been having a lot of fun and uh, we're on our 200th and second design award. 
which is nice. So we've, we've been able to navigate both, the ordinary and the extraordinary. Which makes for a, a great place to, uh, to enter on the metaverse, because uh, mm-hmm. you can really do some, some extraordinary work there. To start, can you give me your understanding? I know you uh, have recently participated in some competitions uh, that have led you to do a lot of study about the metaverse. Can you give me your interpretation and um, description of the metaverse? Well, the the fundamental thing that, that happened in the research we did in the design competition was that the metaverse is the intersection of the physical and the virtual world. And so a lot of people think it's just the virtual world is the metaverse, but it's actually the intersection of both of those. So that you have a physicality, not simply a cartoon figure in a virtual (laughs) world, that you can buy things, you can interact with people. Ideally, when we were studying uh, for the design competition, it was the notion that you could be in a physical space, you could fly to the Middle East, you could be in a physical space, you could have your AR glasses on, while your friend who might be in Paris has their VR goggles on and you turn and you're literally in your physical space, but you turn and you see that person with you in that space, you know, in an AR version of it. So it's not going to be like, you can't touch them, but but they're there. You can see them, you can talk to them and they see you in, in virtual reality space. And so it's the idea of doing a digital twin that this, physical environment that has virtual aspects to it would be replicated. And of course, people are doing that now with entire cities. I mean, there was a rumor that the city of Shanghai has a very high quality digital twin that they're developing so that you could, one person in Kansas and one person in London could be visiting together in, uh, in Shanghai. And that's kind of where my head was going of the metaverse is actually sort of a a replica of the real world and potentially used as like a a proving ground for buildings that may happen in the real world Mm -hmm. of uh, popping into these different locations, especially utilized on like a city planning level, um, I think would be extremely valuable for the the actual use of uh, the metaverse. Well, it would be interesting to see how people interact with the environments, you know, in a virtual setting. What's interesting is there's some advantages and disadvantages in terms of activation and in terms of engagement of people. And in the year 2000, we actually started in 1996, I was teaching a class at UC Berkeley as a lecturer. And and for five years, I taught a class on digital design. This was at the beginning of of just basic things like uh, uh, email and web access. But I was teaching students how to design on the computer, no sketching. And then we did that for five years. And then I changed and I started teaching a course called Placemaking in Cyberspace. So for seven years, we did this course one one semester a year. And we had the students design spaces, but they couldn't be shooter games, first person shooter games. (laughs) They had to use some other kind of engagement because the shooting games are very engaging, but we wanted to not have it be that. We wanted the environment to be the thing that would attract people and and the social interaction attract people and not the idea that you're playing a violent game. So yeah. what's interesting with, with the, the, that we didn't have, we actually had the word metaverse then, but we weren't using it as actively as we w- we're doing now. Um, interestingly enough, uh, one of the fundamental texts that we used was a book called Snow Crash by William Gibson. 
And that book, Snow Crash, defined the word metaverse. That was the first use of the word metaverse was in that book. Uh, a really, truly wonderful book um, talking about the what ifs. It's, it's pure science fiction at the time, but the what if of what an environment could be like that in the virtual world and the physical world and playing off of each other. So the thing about the virtual world is the normal activation in like say a piazza in Italy is that you have this beautiful space that's fundamental. The environment is interesting. And then second, you have people, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have this beautiful space, but nobody's there, it's not a place. So this is again, placemaking in cyberspace is not a place. Now there are physical economic limitations to how wonderful you can make that space is it as beautiful and as compelling as Venice or is it sort of empty desert, right? In the metaverse, you can do whatever you want. I mean, in, in a virtual world, you can make it lush, you can make it empty, you could, you know, you could make it feel like you're in a sandstorm on Mars, which is an environment that can be very compelling, right? Like Dune kind of a thing yeah. as part of an adventure. Then the third thing is activities. And these three things together in, in whatever mixture they are, they create place if this uh, a bond that's created between those three things with the people that go there is enduring and significant. So it's not something you would go to once and then forget about. That would not be a place. That's just a small experience you had. But a true place, and architects are very trained in placemaking generally. I mean, not all of them, but most of them. And so the normal activation though, in the real world, is on the basis of eating and drinking, right? And you don't eat and drink in the metaverse. I mean, you could pretend to, but it's kind of pointless, yeah. right? So you got to find other things for people to do to engage with each other, to engage in conversation or engage in activities. So some of those things are world building is a really good version of that. So if in the metaverse, you, your avatar is able to sort of take construction materials and paint, for example, with their hands, let's say, and co-create with people and create with people, you can get that, that sort of interaction, that activity that's not based on eating and drinking. You can also do educational things and then you get into the whole game theory. And so when we were doing the competition in the Middle East, a big part of the team were people that were very interested in applying game theory to almost everything. So a shooting game is a game, right? So there's a goal to the game, there's participants, there's multiple participants, each doing different things. Now, if you switch out having a, a gun or a weapon and, and you're, you've got a common goal, let's say it could be education, you can make education a game. And there's a lot of people right now that are working on that, is how to make education more compelling, how to get people out of the notion of rote memorization. So does it matter that in 1776, you know, the Declaration of Independence was signed and, de and delivered to, you know, the British government? Is that date more important than having an image of the context of America in 1776? What was happening there? You know, you remember that more. Like if you go watch a movie about that date, about the signing of it, you're going to have a more compelling experience. So mm -hmm. rather than a two-dimensional word, based environment, right? Which would yeah. be remember 1776 and remember these yeah. names, the people that were there. If you were in a virtual environment and you're a fly on the wall watching all these different people sign the document, hearing their conversations, it's going to be much more compelling than trying to memorize a name, right? 
Yeah. So that environment is all possible in the virtual world, right? You could you could literally be an avatar. You could interact. You could go over and ask John Hancock, you know, a question, <laughs> and they might respond. I mean, you know, depending on the algorithm, you know, the response yeah. might be nothing, or like, "Who are you? What are you doing here?" <laughs> or something quite meaningful. Or it could be a person that's actually acting in that moment is John Hancock. But you could imagine the kinds of things that you could start doing that, again, don't involve necessarily first-person shooter games, but, but make the experience of life or learning or a whole bunch of different experiences. So we did a matrix of all these different experiences that you could do. And again, the idea is to have it have a physical sense and also a virtual sense. Let's take a break to share a little bit more about our sponsors. Hello, Spaces listeners. Demetrius here. The other day I was on Instagram and I saw Michelle traveling the world again. I think she was in London this time. Now, if you're a frequent traveler like her or want to live vicariously through a frequent traveler, our new sponsor is your ticket. Travel by Design, an original podcast from Marriott Bonvoy. In this podcast, host Hamish Kilburn, editor of Hotel Designs, speaks with architects, designers, and visionaries who dive deep into their designs and highlight what connects us to the world's most extraordinary travel experiences. If you know me, you know my passion for storytelling and audio production, and this show delivers. Their episode on El Mangrove, a hotel in the mangrove jungle in Costa Rica, really immerses you in the experience of the hotel. From a secluded overwater villa in the Maldives to a trendy hotspot in downtown LA, Hamish and the team do a great job highlighting the often overlooked nuances of design, the benefits design brings to guests, and by the end of each episode, I'm sure you'll want to travel. Beyond just the great quality and storytelling, these episodes are super easy to listen to. That Costa Rica episode is actually just over 12 minutes, so it's a great one to test out the show. Check out Travel by Design. All you have to do is simply scroll down to our show notes, click the Travel by Design link, and easily listen today. Turn your architectural designs into stunning, immersive experiences with Enscape. This innovative tool integrates seamlessly with your design software to bring your ideas to life in real-time, 3D, and VR. With Enscape, you'll experience instant rendering, have the ability to make design changes on the fly, and present your projects in stunning detail. Ideal for architects, designers, and anyone passionate about visual storytelling and architecture. Dive into a new era of design visualization with Enscape. Visit Enscape3D.com to learn more. Are you NCARB certified yet? Join the network of over 45,000 architects who have the NCARB certificate and expand your professional reach. By becoming NCARB certified, you are demonstrating that you've met the national standards for licensure, a qualification that can be an important factor for firms when hiring and promoting. Certificate holders have a streamlined path to apply for a reciprocal license in all 55 US jurisdictions, as well as access to an extensive library of free continuing education courses. Learn more at ncarb.org.
And now let's get back to the conversation. And so for this competition, I believe it was the supposed to be a portal to the metaverse yeah. and it and you had to create a physical place for this yes. sort of launching pad. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, so it was a it would have been the world's largest building and the current world's largest building is the Boeing Aircraft Assembly Plant in I think in Spokane, Washington and it's 247 million cubic feet. This would have been 2 billion cubic feet. Wow. And and all covered on the inside with LED screens. So when you would walk into it, you would feel like you were in a different environment. You could be under the sea, you could be on Mars, you could be on on Venus, you could be in Venice. I mean, you know, the sort of limitless environmental aspects. And then on the ground plane, we had all sorts of things with projection so that you wouldn't have buildings that were, the buildings would be sort of blank canvases and you do a lot of projection. So that if you were under the sea, um, that environment would be very different than the Tuscan village version that you might have or, you know, Venice kind of thing. So, so suddenly uh, the environment would change so that you could walk into a store, but that store might look like you were walking in, in between seagrass, right, to get into the store. And, and we were looking at, can you use nanobots to create like floating fish? You could, yeah. with your AR glasses, you could see, you know, electronic jellyfish. So imagine, you know, you walk out onto this meadow, because this is a very big building, uh, you walk out onto this meadow and suddenly comes rushing towards you is a sea of electronic jellyfish and they're swirling all around you and you put out your hand and one sits there and just twirls for a moment. You know, that's the kinds of things you can do in a physical space. But because of your AR glasses, you can see this sort of ghost of a jellyfish. Yeah. You know, it could be quite compelling. But that's the hybrid part, right? Yeah. So we've, we've had that discussion as well. Do you think... Would you put your money on AR or VR being the predominant use for engaging with the metaverse? Well, I think um, they both have their limitations, right? So AR generally, you can't, you don't get the real sense. AR kind of augments in the sense that you can put the jellyfish in there. You could put like a ghostly image of your friend next to you, but the room that you're in is not going to change to Venice. Right. Yeah. So so you're augmenting reality. So on that physical side, you, but the joy of that is you can walk around like I could walk up to the top of the hill. And if I was in a digital twin, my friend who could be in a VR environment could walk up there with me. Mm -hmm. So, again, you know, it's like that combination. You get a deeper, richer, you know, more colorful version of an experience with virtual reality because you, you feel like you could almost touch it, right, in yeah. virtual reality. And depending on the program, I mean, you could pick something up, right? And you could move it. You could alter it. So, But the thing is, you're still standing relatively still. You can't walk a mile with virtual reality glasses, uh, yeah. goggles on, right? You, you can't do that. And, and, and if you did, I mean, you know, it's, it's like the, the joy of it is you could be in Antarctica, but Antarctica is not going to be the same as the hills of San Francisco where I live. It's going to be relatively flat, you know, with crevasses and things like, well, not relative, parts of it are, you know, quite varied, but it's going to be a different experience. And so I think each has their charm. And I don't know which is going to win, to tell you the truth. I, I, I think the metaverse is better served by AR 
than VR in a sense yeah. because it's that it, it, metaverse being the the intersection of the physical and the digital, right? Yeah. That's kind of where I land because I think there's going to be some exhaustion with the VR and mm -hmm. um, it's easier to to adopt and connect to the idea that you're still planted mm -hmm. in, in a real environment and you can modify that with uh, AR. Mm -hmm. Now, to the point of experiential environments, uh, you also recently did um, uh, the Museum of No Spectators. Can you expand on on that a little bit and and how that experiential element worked with that? Yeah, so uh, we're building it right now as we speak, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, in Richmond, okay. California, and we have to ship it on the twelfth of August, and it gets sent up to Burning Man, and then it will be in physical presence. But the idea for it came in November of two thousand nineteen. So uh, my co-lead artist, Absinthia Vermoot, and I uh, were snarking one day about <laughs> Burning Man. And uh, I mean, we love Burning Man, obviously, and, and, and about the museum shows that just happened. And there was a big one at the Smithsonian in, in Washington, D.C., and then one at the Cincinnati Art Museum and one at the Oakland Museum of California Art. And so we were talking about what would a museum look like at Burning Man if somebody built a museum. So that led to this idea of creating this design. So I went off as an architect and I designed this museum that is very, uh, you know, futuristic in its own sense, but very simple in an architectural sense. You know, lots of flat walls with angled ends so that we could hang a lot of artwork on it, but it's a very dynamic. Some people think it looks like a spaceship. Some things people look think it, it's an abstraction of mountains. It's got flame-based CNC cut metal on it. But again, it's serving as a vehicle for people to bring art. So I finished the design, you know, by about January of 2020. And we started talking about doing fundraising. And we started talking about finding a way to build it and where we were going to build it. And then COVID hit. And then Burning Man totally shut down. And so we had this beautiful model that I had designed in Form Z, which is uh, started out as an architectural program and then now is used more by game designers and other people. But anyway, we had this beautiful model and, and, and I was trying to think, what could we do with this thing? And, and I have a great renderer in Poland. And we started talking about, let's try to do something virtual. So I started talking to different people and we latched on to this idea of the Unreal Engine, right? Mm -hmm. So we have two different versions of the Museum of No Spectators that are currently online. One is in Unity-based Unreal Engine, really super high definition, high resolution. It's got artwork on the walls. Um, you go out there and you can hear the wind kind of... <laughs> Uh, whispering through the panels of the project. Uh, you see the desert. It looks like you're literally there at Burning Man. I mean, you, if, if yeah. you didn't know, you would think that you were, you, you had a camera avatar that was at Burning Man, literally, and you could spin around and walk outside of it. And you, you'd say, am I at Burning Man? <laughs> yeah. In reality, you know, like with a robotic camera or, or am I in a completely virtual environment? It's somewhat difficult to tell. Wow. Which is great. I mean, it's, it's, that's immersive, right? Yeah. But you can't do any, you're there alone, right? The way we have it set up, you can go there, but you're by yourself. You're not going to meet anybody else. You don't have an avatar. 
and and you can navigate through it and you can hear the wind you can see the art so then burning man uh, because it was uh, not going to be in physical space burning man uh, contacted a, a group called black rock city vr and they're using a platform that's called alt space and so there's a, a, there have been now three different alt space burning man events over the last two and a half years and so uh, because we had this highly developed modeled with all the texture maps and everything like that we've been in all three of those uh, burning man uh, black rock city vr events and there you have avatars you have the avatars that come with alt space so they're interesting you can completely customize them but they don't have any legs and they have hands <laughs> but no arms and yeah. so it's an interesting experience and it's it's somewhat the avatars are somewhat cartoonish the 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 space the actual environment uh that that we created is again highly texture map and doesn't feel quite as cartoonish but it's not of the quality of the unreal engine version so you do know that you're in sort of a cartoon virtual environment where with the unreal engine one it's like at first if somebody just told you you know you're you're, you're moving a camera around in physical space you'd believe them yeah until you'd wow. go wait a minute what about this thing but it would be very subtle so anyway so uh we've had a lot of great experiences especially the black rock city vr one we had a new year's eve party there we had poetry readings there we had storytelling there uh, we had dance parties there, a lot of interaction, a lot of avatars showing up, you know, so it, it's been a lot of fun. As a user, how, how does it feel to be there? Well, the nice thing is, as a user, when, when we started the placemaking in cyberspace class, uh, the only environment that was really available was Second Life. And at the time, mm -hmm. Second Life didn't do any voice. So all you could do is type. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so the nice thing and, and, you know, that's kind of a pain. You're trying to talk to somebody and you're typing and you're looking. So the nice thing is, you know, things have improved as as sometimes things do. And now you can you can go on BlackRock City VR and you can speak. So and then you, you can navigate separately from speaking. You're, you're still not, you know, your body is still not moving with it, right? So, yeah. I mean, it can a little bit because, you know, if you use Oculus Quest, which which I had one, you know, with the with the two hand, that's why the hands are disassociated. You can put the, <laughs> the wands on your hands and you can put the full VR goggles on. But to tell you the truth, I did that for a couple of hours, the first, you know, three or four times I went on. But, but because I was motionless, I actually found that I enjoyed being on my big screen better than mm. being in VR goggles because the ability to flip around was not as charming as the ability to, to be able to be stable and rest my hands and, and navigate a little more clearly. So, and that's another thing is, you know, would people rather have that experience with the kind of the blackout reality or, or yeah. would they rather be on their screen? And also what happened was my wife would like to come, but we only had one Oculus Quest. Mm. So it was easier to, to do this together with her on my desktop screen. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Super fascinating stuff, John. Yeah, I'm going to, you have to make sure to send me all these links. I'll add those to the show notes. Uh, so yeah. listeners can check out all these different experiences that you've already created and, and places to check out more. What would be the, the best way for listeners to follow along with what you're doing? Uh, well, we uh, form for architecture 
form4inc.com is the website. We're very active on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. We're also doing three books that are coming out. One is a portfolio book on Form 4. Another one is a memoir that I'm working on that's going to take a while. And then the third is with the Architectural Review, which is a magazine based in London. We're doing um, an advocacy monograph on gender in design. And oh, so we're okay. looking at how many genders are there? Two or eight billion? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, so, you know, so, so there's that kind of publication. Uh, we recently had uh, a public, well, recently in 2018, we had a publication called The Absurdity of Beauty. And we were advocating for the inclusion of beauty and emotional meaning and design. And in that context, there's a little quote about architects haven't been allowed to design beautiful buildings in the last 50 years. And when I tell people that, people go, that's absurd. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? So hence the title. So we are advocating for beauty, even though the title is The Absurdity of Beauty. Yeah. So there's that as well. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much, John. And uh, I'll make sure to put all those links in the show notes. Thank you to the listeners for listening. We will talk again on the next one. Thanks. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out our sponsors. By checking them out and supporting them, you help us keep this show going. Thank you again to Travel by Design for their support of this episode. Behind the facade of every world-class hotel, there's a story waiting to be heard. Make sure you hear that story by simply scrolling down to our show notes and click the Travel by Design link to listen today. Thanks again for listening. Spaces is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. If you enjoy our show, you can support us in three simple ways for free. You can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcast app if it allows you to. Tell a friend and follow us on social media. Thanks for spending time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry. With Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. 
And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK, the three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.